This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. eBay, J.P. Morgan, Anthem, Target, Chase, and Sony. These are all companies that have been hit by high-profile cyber attacks in the last few years. Big companies aren't the only targets. State and local governments face cyber threats, as do small businesses and nonprofits. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper has a plan to counter that with a cybersecurity center in Colorado Springs. This center can be the country's foremost authority on cybersecurity research and development, on training, and on education. It will provide real-time response capability for business to detect, prevent, remediate, and recover from threats and hacks. That's gov- the governor spoke about the proposed National Cybersecurity Intelligence Center in his State of the State address last month. Scott Nelson runs a cybersecurity startup called SecureSet. He's also part of the Western Cyber Exchange, a group of states that share information about cyber threats. The exchange was involved in the planning for the new Colorado Springs Center. Welcome, Scott. Yeah, thank you very much. So if there's a fire, I'd call the fire department. If there's a cyber attack, would I call the center? Well, I think that's the sort of the rub. So if if you're if I put my military hat on, and if you were in the government, and you were in the military, I was in the military. I still am yep. uh, a colonel in the Army Reserve. But uh, I, I think the, for the government, it's very clear on how we respond to these type of incidents because we have the authorities within the government. The problem is it's really mushy between public and private, and how we respond. And so in today's environment, is how do you become proactive? So instead of having the fire department respond, is how do you actually build a house that's uh, protected and secure from cyber attacks. And that's a a harder thing to do than say, but how do we enable that through these public-private initiatives like what Governor Higginlooper has talked about with the the, uh, National uh, Cyber Threat Center? Uh, So some of this is still being worked out. One of the key focuses of the center would be to train people to work in the field of cybersecurity. What are the job opportunities like? Well, I'll tell you, this is an an impressive industry right now. Uh, We're in negative employment. So right now, uh, I've heard statistics saying about 1.1 million vacancies in cybersecurity globally. Mm-hmm. Inside the United States, it's about 500,000. Inside the federal government, a, a couple reports say 60,000 vacancies. So if you have any skills in, in computer science and want to get after uh, getting into security, it's a great opportunity. Starting salaries in these places, a lot of these uh, jobs are starting between sixty dollars and $80,000 a year here in Denver, which is mm-hmm. pretty impressive. And uh, for companies, governments, and nonprofits – how common are cyber attacks? They're very common. So so there's a, a number of uh, uh, experts out there have stated if you haven't been attacked yet, you just don't know about it. Um, and uh, I think I've seen statistics that said about 95% of companies out there have even been probed or attacked in the past six months. Uh, and you see these major incidents have happened, the Sony attack, Anthem, uh, and uh, Target is an example. And, and those continue to go on. You've tracked cybersecurity for 18 years. What are the latest threats cyber experts are facing right now? Yeah, I think the, the biggest one is sort of this sophistication of the, of the networks of cyber attackers. So uh, as an example, uh, the two high-end level ones are the active persistent threat, which is nation-state-sponsored. Uh, think of Russia, Iran, uh, mm-hmm. China. And then the, the, the merging of criminal networks with those nation-states. Uh, Russia does this very effectively with the mafia and the use of the mafia to get that sort of that fog of attribution when it comes to a cyber attack. 
Mm-hmm. And um, we've listed several companies that have been hit by attacks. Give me a sense of what some of the consequences can be. How much can these attacks really damage an organization, a company long term? Well, so, so there was a recent report came out, came out of IBM uh, that said an average attack, a major average attack costs about $3.5 million per company. So if you think about a midsize or a small company, that puts you out of business. Uh, the, the other important thing about this is the dynamics of how the cyber threats have changed. So in the past, like in the 90s and the early 2000s, when a bank got hit and, and money was stolen because of an, an intrusion, uh, the bank just used, used that as a loss. Well, in today's environment, now we're losing reputation. So things like Target or Home Depot attacks, where they're targeting your databases and you're stealing your customers' information, those customers walk away from you. So you're starting to lose your reputation and your actual business if you don't think about this. We're speaking with Scott Nelson, a cybersecurity expert who's been involved in the planning of the future National Cybersecurity Intelligence Center in Colorado Springs. We'll return to the conversation in a few minutes uh, to talk about how vulnerable the state government is to a potential cyber attack. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We'll continue our conversation about plans for a national cybersecurity center in Colorado Springs. The center would help companies, governments, and nonprofits combat cyber threats and train workers in the field of cybersecurity. We're speaking with Scott Nelson of the startup SecureSet. He's an expert in the field and has helped in the planning of the center. Governor John Hickenlooper is pushing this initiative to create a cyber hub. How vulnerable is the state government specifically to an attack? Well, I think the state government's vulnerable because it it holds a lot of citizens' really important records. So everything from health records to tax records, all those are vulnerable today. Uh, uh, hackers and cyber criminals are really after those records. And you can see how the criminal organizations really expanded that. Uh, I think the state itself is struggling, uh, and this is not just the state of Colorado, but across the nation, because we don't have a lot of dollars now to spend on really securing these networks. And these people and these systems cost a lot of money. And then you add the complexity of systems that are all networked with a bunch of different domains across uh, different networks and having a a small workforce to manage that. And then you add all the public and private linkages between the government and and the private sector. Then you add the complexity of a human inserted into the center of that where humans make lots of mistakes and networks don't sometimes. So it's there's a dynamic here across the nation that we are very, very vulnerable because we're so reliant on cyber. So how would the new center help governments like Colorado respond to the threats? Well, I think there's, there's a whole bunch of ways, and I'll give you the top three. Uh, the first one is how do you become proactive? So the idea of this center is really how to – understand threats, share information, and actually respond if a threat is going down. Uh, so if, an, if a company, for example, is under attack and then alerts the center, the center then can send out a, a flash message to all the other companies to say, hey, block this IP address or whatever else, we're seeing this malware, et cetera, and look for these indicators. Um, the other second part of that is training. So how do we educate and exercise a response to an incident? Uh, it could be, I guess, it's the power grid or electric grid or some other uh, important sector in the state. And then the final one is, you know, how do we get the communities really to understand? So how do we spread the word about cybersecurity from a from a citizen's perspective and help them understand how to respond to these type of events? Now, private companies would be part of this security center sharing information. 
But why would an insurance company, for example, um, want to get help from this center instead of just hiring a private company? Well, I think I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is is what's the role of government, uh, and I think this center is really a, a good indication of the opportunity for public private uh, partnership across across the stream, and it and it can't be just one company that's doing all the consulting to help in in uh, d- developing messages or strategies towards threats. The second aspect is cost. So um, if if we're talking about a, a wealthy company, uh, you know, a large insurance company, they would hire a private consulting firm. But if we're talking smaller organizations or even mom and pop insurance companies, they don't have the, the dollars to afford that. And so this is where that center would fill in that gap. The governor wants $8 million from the legislature for the center. Another 15 to $20 million would come from private partners and foundations. Where would the money go? Would there be, say, a building that houses the center? Well, I think it's going to be a whole bunch of uh, different aspects of this. So as you, if you look at the program, and this is still in design, so uh, you know there will be things on – we have to buy technology. We have to look at platforms. We have to build standards and policies and, and uh, education programs. We have to buy people, uh, and we have to reinvigorate – uh, a, a infrastructure that may not exist right now that we have to purchase. So uh, I know that uh, the governor has been looking with the, the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs at the, the old TRW site in Colorado Springs to re, re, revamp that as a center. So instead of buy, building a, a brand new building, using that existing facility and revamping it to support that. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Scott Nelson is a cybersecurity expert in Denver. In a few minutes, a film about the late long-distance runner Micah True, who learned his craft from the Raramuri people of northern New Mexico. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. In the world of long-distance running, the late Micah True is a legend. Started running a long time ago, and uh, I'm an ultra-distance runner is what people call it, but I just call it, I like to run. That's from a documentary about his life. Run Free made its debut at the Denver Film Festival last year. It also was named one of the best films at the Spotlight Documentary Film Awards. The film is currently on tour in cities across the country. The director, Sterling Noreen, joins us along with author Christopher McDougall, who's in the film. He wrote a best-selling book about Micah True called Born to Run, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen. They spoke with Ryan Warner this past November. So Micah True died in 2012, leaving some mystery about how. Um, But let's talk about his life for beginners. Uh, This film and the book Born to Run largely take place in northern Mexico. That's where Micah True spent most of his time. He also spent some time each year in Boulder, we should say. Sterling, why did he live in that remote part of northern Mexico? He would travel there pretty much every winter. And he would go down there and live and run with the Raramuri Indians that have have lived there for centuries. And that's why he went down there, to to be with them and run with them. The Raramuri. And we will talk more about their history with running, which is long and um, quite colorful. Christopher, you met Micah in 2004 down in Mexico. You were actually searching for these people. And um, when you met Micah True down there, I understand he was a little prickly at first. Yeah, yeah, I think if there is one word, I think Sterling would probably back me up on this. If there is one word to describe it, it would have to kind of be prickly. Uh, 
that's the thing about him. He's the pure cactus, you know, barbs on the outside and some kind of weird nectar on the inside. Were you able to quickly um, endear yourself to him, or did it take a while? Well, there are a couple things going on which were invisible to me. When I first met him, literally in the first couple of seconds, uh, he took off like, like a startled deer. He didn't want anything to do with me. Uh, but I hung with him a little bit, and we had a meal. And then the next morning, he agreed to take me for a run in this little town called Creel. And two things over time revealed themselves to me. Number one, if you want to get on his good side and have a good time with Caballo, go for a run with him. He is a different guy when his legs are moving. Yeah. And number two, I had the good luck to meet him at a time when secretly he had another motive. He wanted to put on this race, this kind of running festival, matching the Raramori with runners from the outside world, people like me. And the only way he could do this was if he had kind of a, a spokesman, a messenger, and that was going to be my job. So mm. I can't say I endeared myself to him, but I lucked on the two things. I took him for a run, and I could serve a purpose. We'll talk more about the race that he organized in a bit. Uh, you referred to him as Caballo. He earned the nickname earlier in his life, Caballo Blanco, the white horse, as he would run past to you know, various villages around the world, actually. Um, okay, to the Raramari people, who are also known by their Spanish name, the Taramara, they are reclusive. You write, Christopher, um, that they're only seen if they want to be. Micah True met them in Leadville, Colorado. The Raramari were brought there by an American man who thought that they could win the Trail 100 race, and they did in 93 and 94. True was not the only one fascinated with this culture. Sterling, what's so interesting about them and particularly about their running style? Well, they they run a lot. It's just it's part of their culture. It's something that they've always done to get around in the canyons. They live in very remote places. There's big elevation changes and to get from point A to point B, it you know, it it's not as easy as it looks. It involves traveling long distances over rough terrain. And so they've adapted um, over the centuries to become really great runners. And it's also just a part of their culture that they celebrate. It seems like there's something infectious about their relationship with running. And here's Micah True in your film, Sterling, describing his own outlook on running and the Raramaris. I have a mantra, easy, light, and smooth. I like to run and just kind of find myself in that place, being starting easy and... Uh, becoming light and getting smooth and that's how I like that's how I like to run feeling like I can do that all day long they were Ramory don't have a mantra they just run and um, there's a very particular way they carry themselves Christopher can you describe it that was one of the first eye-openers for me when I went down to the Copper Canyon you know at the time I was actually a contributing writer for Runner's World magazine for Men's Health magazine and one conversation that nobody was ever having in the running community and running journalism was about running form. You're always told, you know, don't change your natural running form, just run the way you run, just buy different shoes. And if you ever watch a marathon, you'll just see 50,000 people streaming by with 50,000 different forms of running, arms moving one direction, heads going different directions. Yet, the first time I was down the Copper Canyon, one of the first things I got a chance to see were a group of school children playing a traditional Tarumara uh, running game. And what I noticed was all these kids from 5 years old up to 15 years old were all running identically. Huh. 
And then when I met Micah, about a week or so later, I went for a run with him. He was likewise running exactly like the Raramori. His back was straight, his head was up, he was leading with his knees. There was a very distinct, almost ballet-like grace that he had for a battered old boxer in his 50s. He was running as lightly as a school child. And I thought, for the first time, you know what, you know, maybe there's way more to this ancient art of running that I'd ever been led to believe. Ryan Warner speaking with Sterling Noreen, the director of the film Run Free, which made its debut at the Denver Film Festival late last year. The film is about the late long-distance running legend Micah True. Also joining the conversation is author Christopher McDougall, who's in the film. He wrote a best-selling book about Micah True. When we come back, we learn about what Micah True and the Raramuri people wore when they ran, and about the death of Micah True. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's rejoin our conversation with Sterling Noreen, who directed the documentary Run Free, and Christopher McDougall, who wrote the best-selling book Born to Run. The book and the film are both about ultra-runner Micah True, known as Caballo Blanco, and about the Raramuri people of northern New Mexico. Micah True spent a lot of time running with the Raramuri. The filmmaker and the author spoke with Ryan Warner in November when the film debuted at the Denver Film Festival. Let's pick up the conversation where they talk about the running outfits worn by the Raramuri. In the film, Micah True's girlfriend, Maria Walton, describes what the Raramuri wear when they go running. They wear the long skirts, the beautiful colored blouses, the, the jingles on their, their belts, and some will just wear like 99-cent flip-flop sandals, and just sandals. So, Sterling, uh, the Ramory obviously run without the fancy shoes that Western athletes often use. Uh, do they train as runners, or do they just kind of come out and do this 50-mile race off the couch, so to speak? Uh, pretty much that. There's really wow. no training to speak of. They just They just run, they show up, they do their best, and yeah, they run in all sorts of sandals ranging from their own homemade warache sandals to, like Maria said, 99-cent flip-flop sandals. Are you much of a runner? If I could just jump in here. Yeah, go ahead, Christopher. I'm kind of curious about the Raramuri. I feel like in some ways we're looking at them through the wrong end of the telescope. Hmm. You know, we're looking at them as if what we do is normal and they are abnormal. But I think to them it's the other way around. They are normal. You know, Raramuri have been living in isolation at the bottom of this canyon for thousands of years. And we're the ones that have changed, that have stopped moving our legs, moving our feet. You know, but all humans, for most of our existence, we, we lived or died by our ability to move our two legs. It's just that in the past hundred years or so, the rest of Western civilization has, has forsaken that. But the Raramuri are still moving today the way humans moved for the last two million years. Uh, let me say this. If any of my questions seemed ethnocentric, I, I uh, certainly don't want them to sound that way by any means. Oh, uh, no, and, absolutely. You know, look, put it this way. If... if, if if that perspective didn't exist, I wouldn't have had a book. <laughs> well, let me, the whole purpose of Born to Run is to point out, hey, you know what? Maybe we've forgotten something here that they've, they've remembered. Let me say that, Christopher, your book helped the barefoot running craze take off. Um, but really, rather than actual bare feet, many athletes bought barefoot-style shoes, you know, these like low-profile ones with the toes separated. One manufacturer had to settle a lawsuit last year which alleged that it made unsubstantiated claims about the health benefits of its shoes. Micah True, like the Raramuri, ran mostly in sandals. 
Uh, but I wonder, does running in the canyons like he did require a different footwear than running on pavement or a treadmill like many Americans do? Uh, no, not at all. But here's where the conversation about footwear has gotten so confusing. The idea of footwear is it should offer protection and not correction. And this is sort of emblematic of where the human race has always gotten into trouble. Like, whenever we think we can outmaneuver Mother Nature, we end up screwing things up and making things terrible. And that's exactly what happened with running shoes. So protection for the bottom of your foot, a great technological innovation, fantastic. Where we got into trouble with our arrogance is assuming that we can now correct the foot's movement and add arch supports and medial posts and extra cushioning, and the rest of it is junk that they shove in their running shoes. But the idea is you add protection to the bottom of your foot as necessary and no more. So what Mike have found in the canyons, which is full of jagged rocks, is all you need is a little bit of sand on you and you're good to go. Let me, let me move on to this race that Caballo Blanco, that Micah True helped organize. You know, as we said, he had run with the Raramari in Leadville. And then he decides to start this race, which strikes me as odd because, Sterling, he had been so um, kind of isolated and, and uh, like a misanthrope. And then he invites all these people in. Well, first, you know, you have to know that he spent many years, almost a decade down there running with them before he created the race. Right. So he, he spent a lot of time learning their ways, learning their culture, running with them. And I think it was just his experience that he had down there. At some point, he wanted to share that experience with others and give something back, create something that could give something back to those people. So he saw this as a means to to help them, I suppose. Most definitely. Why don't we see the Raramari in a lot of the events around the world? So they have in the past competed in Leadville, but you know you don't hear about them when it's the, the Boston Marathon or something. Well... They live a long ways away from the rest of the world. It's not easy for them to, to, to get up, get out, and show up at these, these races all over the world. Although some of them now in, in, in recent years, some of their, their champions have been in, invited to races around the world and have been participating in, mm. in Japan and in North America and, and in different places. Your film actually starts by telling us a bit about Caballo's death. He died at age 59, three weeks after the race he organized in 2012. Um, He disappeared in New Mexico, and a search was called. Uh, People came from California, Canada, and beyond to look for him, and that included you, Christopher. Um, What was it like searching for him in the desert? Oh, boy. Um, It was heartbreaking, and yet somehow kind of jubilant at the same time. Um, there was this, well, you know, the story is, first of all, you know, you mentioned Maria Walton, uh, Micah's girlfriend, and if I could just sort of put a plug in, man, this guy found the perfect partner for his life late in his life. She is just a bright light of warmth and love, and, and I've seen her now for a bunch of years be involved in projects, and every time she always steps up, steps up with such love and great character. So, um, I'm just very happy that he found her in time before he passed on. Hmm. She was the one who contacted me to say that he had disappeared during a run in the Gila Wilderness in New Mexico, which actually, you know, didn't really surprise me very much because that's what he's always doing. But when he, she mentioned that he had left his dog, Wadahuco, tied up overnight, that's when I got nervous because he would never, ever do that. And luckily, Luis Escobar, our good friend, the guy who took those wonderful pictures of the Radamoni 
during that first race down in 2006. He was in California. I happened to be in California, so we drove through the night together. And the whole time we were out there, for the week we were searching, it was becoming increasingly unlikely that we would find him alive. And yet there was this sense of, like, somehow this guy pulled it off again. You know, all of his friends are out here rambling the wilderness because of him. And, and there was this sort of sense of, like, he's done what he wanted, you know? He, he wanted to get us out here in the land that he loved, running through the hills. And that's what we're doing because of him. Sterling Noreen directed the new documentary, Run Free. Christopher McDougall wrote the book, Born to Run. They spoke with Ryan Warner last year. The film debuted in November at the Denver Film Festival. Thanks for listening to Colorado Matters today, and thanks to Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Kareem Maddox, Sam Brash, and our news director, Sadie Babbitts. Our theme music was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Connect with us on Facebook, CPR News, or follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of cprnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News.